to have a guest joining us tonight for the show. Ben Hill from MILB.com is here to join us. We're going to talk some minor league baseball. You might know Ben as the author of Ben's Biz, which follows his travels around the country to various minor league parks. Ben, thanks for joining us tonight. Would you like to take a second and promote your social media presence? Uh, sure thing. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, yeah, right for MILB.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ben's Biz. That's B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. Uh, Instagram, the Ben's Biz, uh, because Ben's Biz was taken. Ah, that's just like one of our other podcasts. It, our, the name was taken for some reason. Funny how that works. So uh, let's dive right into it. It's February, so of course we figured this would be the perfect time to have you on the show. Talk some baseball. So I know that uh, part of your blog is covering your travels all around the country. You're trying to get to all, what is it, 160 affiliated minor league ballparks? Uh, yeah, I, I, made, I did that uh, last year. I, I finally completed the journey. I've been to uh, all 159 affiliated ballparks and uh, 174 overall. Wow. Well, we got some good travelers, but that dwarfs all of us. Mark, you've been probably the most of all of us, right? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, if you want to say current ballparks, I think it's 102. Uh, if you want to say all time, it's probably about 130. So um, it's every year there's a new ballpark opening up, and your list can, goes up, and you gotta make more plans. So, Dave, how many have you been to? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I've been to all the all the international league and a handful in the PCL and uh you know one or two here or there. Thanks. I know my number at the end of last season is uh it's now sixty nine for active ones and I think like eighty overall. Yeah. So uh, Ben, tell us uh, about some of your favorites, some, some experiences that might have stood out from the pack, wherever you want to go. Um, you know, anytime you're talking about minor league baseball with, you know, rookie ball to triple A, it's, it can be definitely real tough to, you know, kind of narrow it down because it's such a wide world. And that's what I like about covering minor league baseball, that so much falls under the umbrella of minor league baseball. Um, so in terms of things that stood out, I mean, so much through the years, I've been traveling since 2010, um, as I said, 174 ballparks overall. So, um, you know, last over the off season, I've done after I visited every single park. You know, finally uh, did the hashtag Ben Everywhere goal of having been to every active affiliated park. Um, you know, I did a series of you know Ben's best articles in which I you know tried to name my favorites uh, level by level. You know, both both overall ballparks and then you know food or ballpark characters, and you know spent a lot of time breaking that down. Um, so I mean, best ballparks. I mean, it can be anything. I think it, for AAA, I went with. Uh, you know, uh, the El Paso Chihuahuas, Double uh, A, uh, Redding, Fighting Phils, um, all the way down to uh, rookie level, uh, you know, in Bluefield, West Virginia, or Virginia. I always forget what stadium or what state that stadium is in because it's pretty much on the state line. Um, so it, it, it all blurs together. It's, it's, it's uh, been a lot of different experiences. So I get asked a lot, too, what's your favorite uh, minor league ballpark, but do you break them down like what if what a uh, level of baseball do you like the most? Do you like your AAA ballparks, or do you favor some of those old classic uh, ones in the Appalachian League? Um, I like aspects of everything. I think <laughs> if I'm, and sometimes it's hard for me to, uh, 
you know, turn off my kind of professional brain and go to the fan brain, the the part of me that's always like baseball and is just kind of um, responding on a more uh, visceral or emotional level. I think on that level, I'm definitely a fan of the old parks, um, even <laughs> when they're, you know, a little beat up. You know, I loved I'm very grateful, for instance, that I got the opportunity to go to Sam Lynn Stadium in Bakersfield, which in a lot of ways was you know, one of the laughing stocks of minor league baseball in terms of the amenities it had and the sun setting in your eyes. Uh, you know, they would have to delay the game, you know, in the first inning for about 20 minutes because the sun was setting in your eyes. Um, but I love those experiences because you meet kind of weirder people and you have weirder experiences and you kind of get to burrow in to these baseball worlds that are full of uh, eccentrics and ex- eccentricities. Um, mm-hmm. So I really enjoy that aspect, especially as a fan, you know, the classic ballparks and, and, and using minor league baseball as an excuse to go to places you probably wouldn't think to go otherwise. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly because I don't think I'll ever get down to um, Kingston, Tennessee or Bristol, Tennessee again. But I was there to see minor league baseball. And, and you're right. Some of those old ballparks uh, definitely do have a lot of character to them, especially when they're packed full of people on a beautiful summer night. There might not be nothing better. No, I, I agree. So for – Someone who is uh, not as well-traveled in minor league baseball, could you give me a, a – what would you say the differences are as you're, as you're heading down? I mean, aside, of course, from the players being older and more experienced and whatnot, but what, what, how, how are the experiences going to be different from AAA to AA to single A to, to rookie league? I mean, most simply, and obviously it's, there's a lot of variety within each level, but, uh, most simply, you're going to see the scale slightly get lower and lower for each level. Um, you know, there's corresponding, you know, minimum seating levels for each level of play where there has to be, you know, X capacity for it to, to accommodate that level of play. So things get, generally speaking, more smaller and more intimate. Um, but even within that, you know, you can go to a, you know, class A short state, uh, class A short season stadium like Lowell or uh, somewhere in Brooklyn and have that, you know, kind of have more amenities than, you know, a double A ballpark in, in Binghamton, maybe. Um, so it's it's hard to always say anything with certainty in the minors. But generally speaking, you're going to see things smaller. You're going to get things on a more and more intimate scale and, um, you know, and also be operating in, generally speaking, smaller communities, which kind of informs the experience as well in terms of who the fans are and where they're drawing from. So to make a correction, it's actually Kingsport, Tennessee, not Kingston. So um, just had to make that. Uh, anyway, Hartford just uh, decided to ban peanuts from their ballpark. Do you see other minor league baseball teams following suit as the decade uh, nears the end? Uh, yes, I definitely do. You know, I couldn't predict who and when, you know, I I was covering the story last week. I I did a feature story on it. Um, you know, that's very much part of my world in terms of just, you know, in addition to visiting these places is just, uh, you know, covering the business of minor league baseball and why these teams make these decisions. And, uh, you know, as you guys are probably aware, I'm sure aware, you know, in minor league baseball, you do see a lot of, uh, you know, it's called in the industry, they just say, you know, we, we like to steal ideas. You know, these teams don't, uh, you know, compete with one another. So if something is done somewhere and it works on any level, it's probably going to be done somewhere else. I think the peanut thing is was really interesting uh, just because how iconic peanuts and Cracker Jacks are at the ballpark. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, the yard goats have over 200 items at their ballpark. And what two are they banning? You know, peanuts and Cracker Jack. It, it gets people talking in way more uh, than if they ban just about anything else. 
Um, you know, personally, I think I support it because peanut allergies are something that, uh, you know, they can be an airborne hazard and, and they are especially prevalent in children. And, um, I, th- but it, it's really interesting how that debate, um, you know, talking to the GM of the team, he told me, you know, like, this is a, just a very American date, uh, a debate right now about, you know, our coddling our children about, quote, the wussification of America. He's like, peanuts are the collateral damage in this whole thing. And, uh, I really did like that this issue for that reason. How it uh, people's people brought their pre-existing worldviews into this debate, and it for it informed what their opinion was. I think a relative minority actually thought, "What are, what is the team trying to do here in terms of why are they making this decision and uh, and why?" And you know, I spoke to some mothers who have children with um, food allergies who really informed that decision. And I think uh, you know that's a perspective that's easier to overlook. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely a great point. I think it also overlooked as someone who worked in minor league ballpark concessions for a dozen years. I welcome getting rid of peanuts because, because man, the the mess created by a bag of peanuts is just worse than anything else you're going to sell. So uh, I'm sure that it's a great PR move by Harper to say, look, we're going to get rid of this. We're opening up the ballpark now to all these families who couldn't come before. But man, the man hours you are going to save sweeping up peanuts is is uh, just something that just hasn't been mentioned in the discussion before. Yeah, that's a great point, though. There's a lot of uh, a lot of workers on the cleanup crew after those games who are going to be glad not to see any shells. That's for sure. So, go ahead, Dave. Um, I was just going to ask. Maybe this is a, maybe a mm, bit more on the field kind of question. Uh, and, and noticing, I, I'm noticing a trend that is teams pulling their top, top prospects from playing in AAA. Um, I know, I know the Blue Jays have done this and, and that's, I mean, that's home for me. Um, they've tried to keep their, their top prospects in AA, maybe a little longer. And, and you're seeing a lot of prospects that are skipping AAA altogether. And I'm I'm not sure what the reasoning is, whether it's, you know, exposure to people who have been in baseball too long that aren't, you know, accelerating into the top level or what. Uh, do you see a trend here? Um, and is there a danger for AAA? Um, I do see that trend, um, you know. Bigger picture with me covering, you know, what I call the business and culture pretty much of minor league baseball. Pretty much all our other writers would probably be better equipped to, to answer a more on the field question such as that. But I think generally speaking, um, it is at this point, double A is considered the, the level for time. Uh, prospects and triple a is more uh for the veterans for the so-called 26 men um for the kind of more up and down veteran type of players where um it's not so uh, prospect oriented so I, I i've definitely seen that and we've had discussions about that before um you know just you know with coworkers. but i don't really cover the player development angle strongly enough to know exactly what the thinking is do you think that's going to hurt triple a in the future i know um like I said, back to back to the Blue Jays again. Uh, the the Jays a, a, essentially lost their affiliation with Syracuse because Syracuse got tired of of them not being competitive. Um, their best prospects not being in Syracuse, and then they were, uh, you know, outcasts with Las Vegas for a couple of years before they could sign in with 
with Buffalo. Like, do you think this this is going to hurt AAA um, and hurt the fan experience? Like, is is there a translation between who's on the field and who's in the stands? Um, I'd say in AAA there is the biggest potential translation um, in terms of fans going to see you know certain prospects or caring about a winning team. It matters more in AAA. But that said, from AAA all the way down to rookie ball, the average fan is not at all well-versed on who the prospects are, um, and the average fan is not at all going to the game based on wanting to see their team win. Um, you know, I think that's more true at the lower levels, a little less true at AAA, but there's no doubt in AAA across the board that the average fan, even in AAA, is going just for the so-called you know, industry you know, buzzword or buzz catchphrase, you know, affordable, family-friendly fun. And I've heard one of the biggest industry cliches I've heard um, from indi- from executives all over uh, the industry is, you know, when our fans leave the game, they might not know the score, but they know they had a good time. And I think that applies to AAA as well, that what they're really trying to do is just to, to make something that's fun for everybody. Of course, do they want a winning team? Yes. Do they want a top prospects? Yes. But I think in most cases, it's not a make-or-break scenario, although it certainly uh, can contribute to the success if you do have good players and top prospects. Now I have a question. Uh, the names of minor league ball, part, uh, ball teams, Rubber Ducks, Jumbo Shrimp, Rumble Ponies, when you first started seeing a trend of these names, did you, were you in favor of it, or was that all part of the family-friendly vibe of minor league baseball? Yeah, you know, it's funny how this has changed. Like, you know, going back to the Iron Pigs, Lehigh Valley, which is a little over a decade ago, I look at that as one of the first names that was kind of truly, you know, crazy, where people are like, this is wild. And uh, then you kind of get used to it. And then I remember, I guess it was prior to 2014, where it was Chihuahuas. And then you're thinking like, no, El Paso is not really going to do that. And they do it. And now, five years later, Chihuahua seems, you know, even kind of tame a little bit. (laughs) It does. It does. Yeah. As we're heading into 2019 with Sod Poodles and in 2020, you know, the uh, Rocket City Trash Pandas. Um, so I think more than most people have become a little immune to it, um, just having to cover it all the time. I I am generally in favor of it uh, because, one, it's successful for as much as, you know, fans, especially in the immediate reaction, especially on Facebook and social media, will be like, this is an embarrassment. Fire your marketing director, you know, X, Y and Z. Teams aren't doing this because they're masochists or because they want to make their fans mad. They're doing this because there is a very strong track record of success going back a decade plus. And it's part of the formula for the fans to get mad and then go to a game, see how it ties into the overall experience, and probably within a year or two being like, hey, you know what? I love this. I think a lot of the anger is just not really understanding what a 21st century minor league experience you know, can be. And uh, again, you just wouldn't see it happening again and again if it was not successful. Now, do you ever so, see the? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you ever see the trend of it going back? Maybe a yeah, little more subtle name or traditional names like the Jacksville Sun. Yeah, you know, we, we I get asked that question a lot, and I think okay. you know, minor league team names, like most things in the sport, like most things in life, are cyclical. You know, like that that there's ebbs and flows. I, but I've been proven wrong. You know, I, I thought Chihuahuas was wild, and now we're looking at trash pandas, but. I don't know. Maybe we can go a lot further than trash pandas, and and uh, but I think there will be a trend towards a little more conservative as the years go on. I think Worcester is going to be a good test case for that in two years, whether they stick with Red Sox or if they go with something kind of crazy. Yeah, absolutely. That that'll be a big one. 
Well, I made it to 724 without mentioning mentioning Worcester. So. <laughs> good good. You. That's a record. Go ahead, Dave. Would the uh, – I mean, to me, maybe the outlier here in, in a name that, if you think about it, is kind of crazy, but has been around for a heck of a long time, the Mudhens. Would the Mudhens have been crazy back back in the day? Well, and, and that's – I've written stories along those lines of, um, you know, longest running team names and – um, I think that's part of it is you go back to, I think, like the 20s or even before that with the Mud Hens name. And if that came out today, people would be like, this is an outrage. This is this is embarrassing. But since it's been there for 90 some years, it's just part of tradition. You know, and, and it's, I'm not the first to make this point. But how bizarre is the name Red Sox or White Sox if you just hadn't heard it your whole life and just come to accept it as fact? Um, we we get used to things <laughs> and uh i think a lot of the weirdness is just because you're not used to it and then you say it a few times or you you get used to it over a few years and it just seems kind of like what is and it no longer kind of gets you mad or even makes you think at all very much except it's something you like it's baseball now do you think the uh the same sort of formula has happened with syracuse and the mets because you know you sit you had a, it's not, not like it's a crazy name or anything, but there was definitely a backlash when, uh, when it was announced that Syracuse was going to be renamed as the Mets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously big picture, the trend we've seen over the last decade, uh, is seeing teams shifting from parent club names to, uh, unique names. And there's obviously lots of reasons to do that. You know, you establish your own identity, independent of affiliation. Uh, you can sell more merchandise. You can brand the ballpark in a better way. Um, you know, we have seen like Oklahoma City had some Dodgers ownership and they changed the name to the Dodgers. South Bend was so happy to get the Cubs affiliation given their proximity. They changed their name, you know, from a unique name, the Silverhawks uh, to the Cubs. Uh, We're seeing the same thing with the Syracuse Mets, definitely an outlier, but it's, you know, the Mets now own the team. So I think, you know, the minor league front office side of it didn't really have a choice. I don't know what their opinions are on it. Um, and so because there's that direct ownership with the team, I guess they really wanted to put their stamp on it, at least in these early years. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if down the line they switched to something unique. It's interesting in Syracuse that that, that team, going back to the 30s, had only ever been the Chiefs or the Sky Chiefs. Yeah. And never once had they had a parent club name. So in the year, you know, to head into 2019 – and finally have the name of your parent club is certainly making them an outlier. Um, it's not a very exciting identity. It certainly alienates fans who might support, you know, the Chiefs, but they have their own major league rooting affiliations where it's hard, hard to go to Syracuse and be like, let's go Mets. Um, you know, it's a little more alienating in that way. But it is also a very exciting time for the franchise because they're community owned. Uh, they've consistently lost money. And uh, in terms of keeping baseball long term in Syracuse, it's due to that Mets relationship. Um, and uh, they really want to you know, make that clear right now, especially in the early going. Yeah, now, now speaking of Syracuse, that's sort of one of the ballparks that was built a little bit away from the downtown. And there's been some concerns that there could be a new ballpark somewhere down the future, major upgrades. What's your take on some of these older AAA ballparks that may not be centered in a downtown? Do do you think what could be used for a minor league team to create excitement to get people to enjoy a night out there? Yeah, it is. It is definitely tougher when you're in an area like Syracuse where you kind of have to drive there and it's not tied into any part of larger day out in the city or bars or restaurants or, or park area or outdoor activities. Um, it definitely makes it a, a tougher thing to do. 
Um, you know, I'm sure Syracuse, like pretty much any team, if they could, they would like a, a new stadium. But uh, when you're dealing with public uh, public money in a lot of cases, um, obviously that's going to be a lot easier said than done and for good, obvious reasons in a lot of cases there. Um, so it is tough. You have to hustle that much harder and uh, uh, you know create a product that makes people want to get in their car and come see you um, independent of anything else that's going to draw them to that area. So it can be tough, especially when your ballpark you know, is a little bit older, doesn't have the modern amenities, might not have a 360-degree concourse or a super high-def video board. Um, it is definitely operating at a disadvantage, and uh, I think that's where you just have to be more and more creative. Creativity can't account for everything, but I think – that's one of the the strongest things you have in your arsenal is just like really always pushing. And outside of, you know, in Syracuse, outside of how boring the new name is, that front office has had a lot more energy and creativity in recent years uh, than they had previously. So I think even with the Mets name, you know, they're going to keep hustling and keep doing fun things like last year i loved their uh, you know salute to central new york promotional theme that included uh the salute to the brannock device where they actually wore jerseys saluting the brannock device the foot measuring tool those are the kind of things i love about minor league baseball you got players in brannock device jerseys that was paul lucas's idea correct uh it wasn't his idea idea. but um he once once he heard about it the team Uh took it to new levels because they had like this outside media interest. Nice. Uh, so the promo took on a much bigger um, role because of Paul Lucas's interest. I was going to ask you what a Brannock device was. Right, thank, you, thank you for answering that question. So uh, along those lines, what do you think about all the, the uh, rebranding that's going on, the special nights, like the, the food nicknames? We uh, actually did a whole podcast about food one time, and we ended up talking about things like the uh, – the salt potatoes and the garbage plates and the uh, whoopie pies and the hot wieners. What, what's your take on some of these names? In, uh... Well, you know, like, you know, something successful when people copy it and copy it and copy it. And, right. uh, you know, I've been uh, tracing this trend uh, or, you know, covering this trend, which, you know, to me, it starts with Lehigh Valley not changing their name, but doing the bacon themed uniforms. And that kind of spurred Fresno to take that idea of a food-based uniform but actually change their name, and they became the Tacos. And I think the one-two punch of Lehigh Valley with the bacon uniforms, Fresno with the taco identities, then you just saw the snowball snowball rolling down the hill and just so many teams picking up on that. Uh, Like anything else, it now starts to feel not boring necessarily, but – um, you just kind of at this point when you follow the world like I do, you just kind of note it and you're like, ah, that's cool. Uh, and, and don't think much of it unless it's something that has, you know, a personal connection. But that's what I like about it. I'm roundabout way getting to that. When I cover minor league baseball or what I like about minor league baseball and why I like to cover it is the things that make each community unique, that make each region unique, that make each town unique. And food is often part of unique regional identity. So anything a team can do to highlight their regional identity is to me something great. And uh, and then you you learn about the country. I, I, I'm always such an advocate for minor league baseball in terms of how much you learn about America just through covering and following minor league baseball. I didn't know what a runza was until Omaha suited up as the runzas last year. You know, you learn about Syracuse salt potatoes. You learn about a uh, you know Scrapple and Delmarva, hot wieners in Pawtucket, uh, and so on and so forth. Now we got two teams trying to claim whoopie pie supremacy, Reading and Portland. Right. So they actually had to battle it out. You know, you, you learn so much. Uh, and, and people take such pride too uh, in in their food, you know, in Rochester garbage plates. They just go by the name plate. They took out the garbage, but those are garbage plates, um, and, and so on and so forth. You learn 
fans respond, especially local ones, because these are things they grew up with, they take pride in, and they've never really seen it celebrated in such a visual and creative manner outside of just going to a restaurant that serves it. Is there any trend on the horizon that we can look forward to in, in this vein? Well, you know, we've been talking about that, uh, you know, my, me and my coworkers or myself and people on Twitter. Um, what are new directions that we can go with alternate identities? Uh, two intriguing ones so far this year. Uh, we have Altoona, who are going to rebrand, I think, for several nights this year uh, in 2019 as the Yinzers. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're from Pittsburgh, um, I'm not from Pittsburgh, but I went to Pitt, so I have a, a decent understanding of that region. But um, I haven't come across any team you know, changing their identity to regional, you know, to, in, a, in reference to regional dialect or or a name that people give themselves based on regional dialect. So that's a new one. And I've been trying to think of other geographical, uh, you know, dialects that, that, that could work for alt- alternate identities, maybe in the South or the Pacific Northwest or what have you. Uh, another real interesting one. Um, on a, yeah, there you go. The Yuppies. Uh, get that Upper Peninsula pride for sure. Um Another alternate identity that I like a lot is um, Bowling Green last week announced that they're going to play one game as the sinkholes. And that is a reference to the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green that had a sinkhole open up underneath it and a bunch of classic Corvettes fall into the sinkhole. Five years later, they're going to call themselves the sinkholes in reference to this. And they have a really cool logo (laughs) that has, has the BG kind of like the, on the undercarriage of the car, which itself is like half submerged in the sinkhole. And, uh, you know, that's some next level alternate identities when you've got something like the sinkholes and the yin and the yinzers, you know, who knows where we're going next. Yeah. That's interesting because I just got a, an email that, the Bowling Green review has to be updated, so uh, maybe that's a good night to go when they uh, honor that uh, Corvette sinkhole from five years ago. Yeah, but, I'd uh, recommend that one for sure. Yeah. Wow, of all the places for a sinkhole to pop up, huh? Yeah, it was. You know, Bowling Green. There's, you know, it's on the way to Nashville from where I am in Indianapolis. So I usually stop uh, in Bowling Green, Nashville, and then come back. Uh, not one of my favorite cities to visit, and not one of my favorite ballparks, but you know, something like that could probably get me in my car or drive about three hours south to see it. So uh, classic example of trying to pull people into your ballpark. Yeah, absolutely. That'll, that'll draw people from a much wider region than usual. Yeah. So, so how about, um, we've seen a lot of shifts in franchises this winter, uh, you know, with the, the Southern league, Norling joining the Southern league, Wichita, and we got some other franchise moving moves coming up uh anything on the horizon we should be aware of um secrecy yeah well 2020 is going to be the wichita move new orleans to wichita um you know in 2019 as you guys probably know we're going to see uh the movement is mostly based around the uh, whole domino series it was all teams in the same ownership group but uh if you can try to follow this real quickly and you know the helena brewers in the pioneer league moving from Helena to Colorado Springs, becoming a rookie-level Pioneer League team, the Rocky Mountain Vibes, the AAA team that had been in Colorado Springs, the Sky Sox, is moving to San Antonio and becoming uh, 
the San Antonio Missions in the Pacific Coast League. San Antonio has long had a team called the Missions, but they were the AA Texas League. That AA Texas League entity is going to Amarillo and becoming the Sod Poodles. So those are all teams in one ownership group, uh, the Elmore ownership group. So that kind of made it uh, easier for that to happen. But those are most of the um, new changes we have for 2019. Also, we have in Fayetteville, after two years in a temporary stadium in Bowie's Creek uh, at Campbell University, um, we have uh, finally a new ballpark opening in Fayetteville, and that's going to be home to the Woodpeckers. So that'll be a new team uh, coming up in 2019. And um, also a new ballpark in Las Vegas is one to look forward to. Uh, Las Vegas ballpark, but it's technically located in Summerlin, uh, which is essentially a, j- a planned community adjacent to Vegas. And uh, so that's one of the big ones, too, in terms of uh, changes to the landscape through new ballparks and uh, some yeah, geographical shifts, league shifts. Uh, it can be hard to take uh, keep track of. There's no way I'd know it if I wasn't paid to know it. Absolutely. And Vegas is rebranded for this year, right? They're going to be the Aviators? They're the Aviators, yeah. I mean, yeah. everything with Vegas is basically tied into Howard Hughes right now. Um, the team is owned by the Howard Hughes Corporation. Summerlin, where the ballpark is located, is a planned community owned by the Howard Hughes Corporation, and the Aviator's name is a reference to Howard Hughes and his aviation exploits. So uh, when you're thinking about uh, Las Vegas baseball in the year 2019, uh, think of Howard Hughes. Or don't, but, you know. Well, a, a common name compared to some of these other ones. Yeah, it, it's it's downright conservative compared to a sod poodle or a trash panda, for sure. Um, funny that you brought up uh, Vegas because – Vegas is one of the spots, Vegas, Charlotte, a couple other spots where you know you hear rumblings about Major League Baseball coming. Uh, that, I mean, to me, it, it, with the with the newness of the stadiums and the the heavy investment that you already have in AAA baseball, it, to me, it always seemed to be a bit of a far fetch. Um, but what do you think? Um. I don't know. I mean, we've heard. I, I really don't know what, how that's going to shake out. I do know that in some of these markets, these AAA markets getting new ballparks. Certainly, one of the arguments against new ballparks on the AAA level has been what we're the message we're sending now. This was certainly one of the um, opposition arguments in Charlotte. Is kind of like we're getting a new AAA stadium. Then what we're telling people is we're a AAA city. Um, so that can be one of the uh, arguments against. And again, when you're dealing with public money. And whatnot, it is hard to justify the building of a brand new, very nice AAA stadium, and then a couple years later be like, "Oops, now we got to do a Major League one." That said, Major League Baseball is such a huge proposition and a huge opportunity. At the end of the day, I think if the opportunity is really there, they'll find a way to <laughs> to do it. And uh, what becomes of the AAA stadium is anyone's guess. It's still going to be a really nice new stadium. Uh, but I really don't know how all that's going to shake out or what the presence of AAA means uh, in that process. So would you think that that uh, Portland is kind of going in that, in that direction where, you know, AAA baseball left Portland like years and years ago, and now all of a sudden Portland is, is a destination that is talked about for – for uh, Major League Baseball, where they don't have a, a AAA team that's in the way or anything like that. Yeah, you could see that. And then sometimes, you know, I, I hear people comment like, how are you going to talk about Portland as a Major League city when they couldn't even support a AAA team? I think that's kind of apples and oranges in terms of the level of support it gets and the level of uh, interest is a little different. Um, but I think Portland, yeah, there's no AAA team there. The closest baseball they have 
uh, well, is very close, but, you know, Hillsborough, but that's Class A short season in the Northwest League, and uh, certainly no obstacle to Major League Baseball should that come in. Uh, they might be able to coexist as a Class A short season team in much the same way you see, uh, you know, Brooklyn Cyclones or Staten Island Yankees coexisting in uh, the New York media market. So you don't know how that's going to play out. But, I mean, Portland seems, uh, you know, as viable as any of the others right now. Um, you know, a whole side argument of that, which I literally don't know anything about, is what if Major League Baseball expands by two teams? How does Minor League Baseball expand to, to accommodate uh, two whole systems? Um because it really can't right now in terms of like two new AAA locales, two new AA. I think we'll end up seeing some shifting within like the pre-existing le- amount of teams, but some shifting in her- who's in what leagues. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. I have no idea. But it's, <laughs> it's interesting to think about. Yeah, that's good. I, I, it's great to know other people stay up late thinking about things like this. Yeah. Now, Ben, is there a certain market that's out there that is maybe besides Portland, even though they do have Hillsborough in, uh, in the suburbs, that's void of any minor league baseball team that you're thinking, man, this would be such a great spot for a team? Wow, that's a really good question, because I and I feel like I should have an obvious answer, but right, you. Um, I'm trying to think of a place that like a, a large viable market that is just completely devoid. That is a, a good question. I mean, <laughs> Providence. Yeah, trying to think of uh, I know like um, like Wilmington, North Carolina had, has uh, has been mentioned as a, as a spot for quite a while, and I think one that uh, is definitely viable down the line. Um, some of it is just geography compared to you know it just doesn't really slot into you know, other leagues. leagues. Um, you look at the state of Minnesota does not have a affiliated team. Um, it, they've got the Twins and they have the independent St. Paul Saints, but they don't have an affiliated team. So, of course, you look at whole regions like that that could support minor league baseball. The problem is that there's not a league infrastructure that makes sense in terms of travel. So I think those are the areas I see it most. But unless you can wholesale start a new league or greatly expand a pre-existing one, you just can't create a league footprint right now that where where that, that area could really work. Um, so I think that's where you see mostly – uh, the markets that could support but don't have it is just where there's no league. Ooh. How about um, the whole country of Canada? And there's what one minor league team there now? Do you think? <laughs> I, I know it's tried in places like Ottawa before. Do you think there's anywhere up there that might be able to support a team? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you go back twenty, thirty years ago, and you were looking at teams in Ottawa and Calgary. You know, AAA well, then in Vancouver. I remember looking at the backs of baseball cards as a kid and being like. You know, like where is Medicine Hat? You know those kind of places. Um, there That's were quite cool. a few Canadian teams. Um, I remember doing an article on this years ago, and things might have changed, and I've forgotten a lot of it. But I think a lot of it was, uh, you know, post nine eleven border security. Um, it just became a lot more difficult for those up and back, uh, you know, trips across the border in terms of the cost of it. Um, so I think that's a lot of it was just logistically. Um, then you have to deal with the exchange rate. I don't know how that affects it right now. But I think just the, the ease of travel was the main thing that, that, that caused a lot of teams to leave. I think the markets could support it. I'd personally love it just to have new places to go and to feel like the game was slightly, you know, more, a little more international in that, in that regard. Cause right now we have 160 minor league teams and, uh, 159 of them are in the United States. So just Vancouver. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It, just and that's, a, that's exactly what happened to Edmonton. Edmonton was good to go, and they were successful, and they were doing fine. And then all of the partners in the Pacific Coast League said, no, nah, we're not going up there anymore. 
because yeah. Cal- Calgary was gone and Edmonton was way off on its own and nobody wanted to go back there. And they basically squeezed them out. Yeah, and I think that's basically the story. And uh, you know, going on a tangent, you only have to go back 30-some years to where the Pacific Coast League had a team in Hawaii, which just seems wild right now. But you know, <laughs> ah, That's awesome. Yeah. Hawaii Islanders, San Diego Padres, correct? I, I believe. I believe so. Um, Hawaii Islanders, that, that team became um, the AAA Sky Sox, who have now become the AAA San Antonio Missions, and on and on it goes. Yeah, I heard that uh, the Hawaii team would play a series of games for like a couple weeks in Hawaii, and then they would come on the mainland for a series of games. Uh, but I just cannot imagine Hawaii ever being back in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, I, I cannot either. I think it'd be awesome if it was, but like, it would be nice. Yeah, logistically speaking, it just I see virtually never say never, but I see an incredibly low chance of it ever returning. Now, how what, how old were you when you went to your what, what was your first minor league ballpark? When did you fall in love like I did going to these type of games? Um, it's funny. I was always a huge, huge baseball fan. Uh, you know, I grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs, Ambler, PA, about you know twenty miles north of the city, and always a huge, huge Phillies fan. Just obsessive from as as pretty much as long as I can remember. But that said, I didn't really go to much minor league games. My first real experience with the minor leagues was my grandparents had a house in the Poconos right around the time um, the AAA uh, the Scranton Wilkesbury Red Barons were starting up, and I loved that. It was a Phillies farm team, so. You know, contrary to what I was saying about how like the results on the field don't matter, I went to those games like hyped as a Phillies fan, and the stadium has been essentially torn down and rebuilt since then. But at the time, it was like a mini vet, you know, with the same um, the same architectural layout, just much smaller, the same field dimensions, artificial turf, and uh, and I remember just being excited, like kind of realizing that when players left the major leagues, they didn't just disappear. I remember seeing Steve Jeltz um, playing in one of those games uh, who I remembered from the Phillies a few years earlier and just being blown away. Like, wow, the minor leagues have guys like Steve Jeltz like, still playing, and I was so excited by that. So I was super into those late 80s, uh, early 90s Grant Wilkesbury Red Barons teams, and I still remember some guys who never really made it, Steve Scarsoni or Jeff Grotewald, who at the time I was like, these guys are awesome, you know. Um, so that was definitely my first experience and, and by far the most vivid one because for the most part i was just all major league philly philadelphia phillies all the time yeah see my grandmother lived in wilkes and we would go there i don't know every other month to visit and there really wasn't much to do so i remember sometime in the eight uh early 90s you know my mom took me to a game at uh lackawanna county stadium and it was like wow this is this is much different than checking out a game at the vet or shea stadium uh, what I'm used to. And then, um, you know, every time we traveled, I wanted to check out a stadium here and there. And uh, so it was sort of like you, you saw former players and it was cheap tickets. You were up close and personal. And every summer, just like you, I'm trying to visit as many ballparks as I can. Yeah, it's a worthwhile pursuit. It never uh, gets old, really. No, it's always something new to go to. Yeah. So if, if uh, Ben, if travel is is not an issue for you, you can, I don't know, you've got some sort of teleporter machine. You can go there in an instant, no problem. And you're looking for some dinner. Where are you going? 
<laughs> which, which which minor league ballpark are you going for dinner, and what are you eating? Huh. Well, that's a good question. For me, it's complicated somewhat in that uh, you know I got diagnosed with celiac disease in 2012, so I had to go gluten free. Um, so I actually recruit designated eaters at the ballparks I go to. Um, <laughs> that's why you do it. And, we, uh, we got plenty of those over at Stadium <laughs> Journey. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, you better not be taking resumes. You're going to be flooded. Yeah, well, every year when I post my itinerary, uh, you know, I say, like, you know, please get in touch if you want to be a designated eater. And, you know, some of the smaller markets, I might just get one or people or one or two people who, quote, apply. But some of the bigger places like, you know, Toledo, there was like, you know, stiff competition for that last year. Um, in terms of me, you know, it is compromised by the whole gluten free thing. But uh, I'd probably say El Paso uh, because. One, the Mexican's a little easier on the gluten-free stuff side, but even putting that aside, um, you know that ballpark is li- literally on the border with Mexico, and uh, you can see Juarez from right behind the stadium. And the ballpark food with you know a lot of the tacos and the Juarez street dogs that are bacon wrapped, like really, is not just like an Americanized, just our idea of what Mexican food is like. It is very real Mexican food that I just thought was so great to have. You know, it, it, you need that. If you're a border ballpark, you really need that border town cuisine. And uh, I thought El Paso was doing it really, really well. Does El Paso get a lot of crossover from uh, from Juarez? Um, they do, and they do market to Juarez. I'm not sure what portion of like their fan base, um, you know, comes from Juarez. It's certainly a minority, but they do market to Juarez, and they and they also have game day employees for sure, who uh, you know who make the commute uh, from Mexico and, and, and work there. So do you know where uh, your schedule takes you this year? Is it are you hitting all the new ballparks or coming back to some favorites? Um, you know, I'm working on the schedule now. Um, I think last year that I, again, you know, hit the milestone of having been everywhere. It's, you know, caused me to kind of rethink how I do things a little bit because in the past I was always a little bit manic in terms <laughs> of if I was going to a region, then I had to just like hit as many other ballparks as I could in that region. Um, but, you know, for the way I cover things, when you hit, you know, seven and seven days or 10 and 10 days and you're trying to write feature stories and blog posts and recruiting the designated eaters and doing that and trying to be active on social media and, um, you know, doing podcast segments and X, Y, and Z. Um, I think going forward, I'm going to try to slow it down, spend more time in each place, uh, not hit as many places, but just try to expand the coverage and uh, try to do things in new ways so I don't start to feel redundant. So all I can really say right now is that I'm going to be going for sure. This is what I'm, you know, comfortable talking about right now. I'm certainly going to Amarillo, seeing the Sod Poodles. Certainly going to Fayetteville, seeing the Woodpeckers. Certainly going to Las Vegas and seeing the Aviators. Those are the three new ballparks, and uh, that's my the one thing I'm I can guarantee for 2019 and that I'm looking forward to. Beyond that, I don't know, but I'll definitely hit a few other places. Yeah, I definitely agree. I hate when you go to a city and a ballpark, and then the next day you got to hop in your car or, or fly someplace else. Uh, you really, uh, you sometimes you go to a city that you really enjoy. Is, has there been a city that, or a small town that you felt, wow, I wish I had a couple more days here? Oh, all the time, and because the most time. of the time my uh, itineraries are kind of grueling, which is my yeah. own fault, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of time I just feel like I barely got a sense of a place before I had to leave. And sometimes these hotels are, you know, in very homogenous areas. And when you look up and down the road, it could be anywhere in America. And you're like, man, this sucks. Like, I really want to get a sense of this place and I'm not getting it. That said, I've certainly been to a lot of places that I've really enjoyed visiting. You know, I've been in New York City for 16 years. I love New York City. 
but sometimes I go to other places and I, you know, I flirt with living there. Like these other like cities are small towns. I kind of, I look at them as like mistresses and like New York city is my, like my wife back home and I can never leave my wife, you know, New York city. But, um, I don't know how well that analogy works, but it's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, how I think of things. Um, so every, anywhere from like Eugene, Oregon, like just being in a kind of hippie, uh, free spirited town like that. Um, cities like, uh, like Durham, uh, Durham, nice. North Carolina, and a lot of that, that region in general, uh, Portland, Maine, um, you know, of course, like Round Rock and Austin area. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting a lot more, I'm sure. And that's one of my favorite things to do. And that I hope I get more time to do this year is, uh, is really explore these cities a little bit more in towns as opposed to going to bed late, sleeping late, waking up, checking out the hotel, trying to get lunch somewhere. Maybe hitting up a record store or a bookstore if I have time just to do something and then driving, you know, three, four hours to the next place and then doing it again all over. Sounds we like have, we, uh, we can definitely sympathize with, with that yeah. struggle of, of uh, road trips and trying to fit as many ballparks in, but yet trying to see as much of the region as you, as you can. Uh, you were talking a little, we got a little bit into the, the food in different places. So I know part of minor league marketing is finding ways to bring people in. So some of that can come in the forms of wacky promotions. What, what are some of the things that you've experienced that really stand out? And is there any trends that we can look forward to as far as promotional? Um, well, I think we hit on some of the trends for sure with the uh, alternate identities. Um, you know, when you, when you're looking at any upcoming season, one of the trends you're going to see is, uh, you know, pop culture anniversaries. So in 2019, um, I think we've got a, what do we have, a, a 30th anniversary of uh, Field of Dreams. So we're going to see quite a lot of uh, Field of Dreams promos. Seriously? It's um, been 30 years? Yeah. Oh, it's been 30 years? Yeah. Eight men out too, right? Yeah, 89 to 2019 for Field of Dreams. Um, you know, I think we'll see some Indiana Jones promos for 30th for Last Crusade, 35th for uh, Temple of Doom. Uh, definitely seen some of that. Uh, Major League. Uh, Major League, I think, is also is that also thirty? Yeah, and uh, thirty nine. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're seeing that. So that's always what last year's biggest trend on the anniversary front was Sandlot. You know, we had Squint. You know, uh, the actor who played uh, Squints playing. Uh, you know, showing up all over the country. And uh, yeah, I saw him in Lowell. Yeah. Um. So that's definitely a trend. And um. As to what else, uh, well, there's going to be a new season of Copa, Copa de la Diversion, uh, the Hispanic marketing, uh, you know, designed to attract um, Hispanic fans and 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 more resonate and resonate with uh, Hispanic communities, which are generally not marketed to as well as they could be by minor league teams. So we're gonna, uh, that's about a month that we're gonna have a new Copa unveiling, but it's gonna be like seventy some teams this year that have alternate, you know, Hispanic uh, Spanish language identities. So that's gonna be huge. Do you have any uh, promotions that are ongoing that that uh, you found interesting or that you've experienced? And I mean, I know some of the ones that I've experienced. Uh, you know, I every year we hit Star Wars night in Buffalo um, because that's pretty crazy. I know in Rochester they do a Batman night uh, every year. Is is there any of the ones that that are kind of continual that are ongoing that that jump out at you? Um, for the most part, the ongoing ones don't jump out too much just because when you do something a whole lot, then it becomes commonplace. 
Um, it's commonplace because it works, so it's not to, to put that down. But um, I guess for someone like me who is always trying to find what's new, you know, it becomes harder to, you know, cover Star Wars nights or Bark in the Park nights or, of course, like just fireworks shows, um, things like that that you just keep seeing, the superstars. Those guys are really great but you know when and and uh but you know when you see things year in and year out it, it's you take it for granted a little bit so there's things i enjoy on a fan level but um but not two that really get me excited on a professional level in terms of something new to cover because i'll cover a promo even if it might be a bad idea or really kind of ultimately be unsuccessful as long as it's new you know i want the new it's kind of hard not to agree with that you uh Definitely want to go out and see some that blows your mind at a minor league uh, stadium. So, um, yeah, I missed you last year in Fort Wayne. I think you're looking for some designated eaters and happen to be out of town. Yeah, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry about that. I was there. The, the, the day I was in Fort Wayne was it was Father's Day. And it was of all the places I went last year, who would have thought that Fort Wayne would have been the absolute hottest? But it was brutally hot on Father's Day in Fort Wayne. Yeah, so do you agree that Fort Wayne usually gets a pretty high ranking from us with uh, minor league ballparks? Do you concur? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's one of the best uh, Class A ballparks uh, for sure. Um, You know, when I picked my own favorites, you know, back in October, November, wherever that was, and I did it level by level, again, you know, revealing my sensibilities a little bit, a lot of people would pick Parkview Field in Fort Wayne. I went with – McCormick Field in Asheville because I think in my heart of hearts I like I like the classics <laughs> the, the 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 really old ballparks the ones that once they're gone can't really ever come back in terms of other ballparks emulating anything close to what the feeling they have. Yeah, and plus you get to spend some time in Asheville, North Carolina, which is not a bad way to spend a weekend. No, another great town. You know, talking about great towns to visit, uh, Asheville is certainly a, a great minor league town. Wow, I'm just I'm just sitting here thinking I I could just continue this conversation for for hours even days, but um, we're coming up against an hour already, so uh, the time has flown. Then I think wait maybe this might be a good spot to wrap it up. Uh, I really want to thank you for joining us, and uh, you want to take a minute again to to pimp out your social media, your blog, everything else, so our listeners can know where to find you. Yeah, sure thing, Ben Hill. Cover the business and culture of minor league baseball for MILB.com. I got a blog, Ben's Biz Blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Twitter, Ben's Biz. Instagram, the Ben's Biz. Just Google Ben's Biz, and uh, you'll 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 find you'll find me, and you know just follow your own path to to my work and uh, get in touch. You know, any any way you can get in touch with me. My email is at the bottom of every uh, article and blog post I write. I really like hearing from readers. I re- Really try to be responsive in that way. So, um, you know, let's have a discussion. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. And he does respond because you've responded to me in the past a few times. So I can vouch for that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's how. That's how uh, this. The idea to have you on here. I know we bumped into each other. I think we in New Britain and then again in Hartford. So uh, yeah, if anybody, uh, you know, say hi to Ben. He's a friendly guy. <laughs> I, I, I try to be. I try to be. Yeah, that was the last. Uh, the last game in New Britain Rock Cats history, wasn't it? Yes, that was. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, we were at the last game. They, they they wanted the stadium to stay open so much they uh, went into extra innings that day. Yeah, like fifteen innings. It was absurd. Yeah. <laughs> what do you what do you think of that rule of putting a person on second base to start every extra inning in the minors? You know what? I'm a hundred percent okay with it. If I was a fan and I heard that, 
I'd be like, that is so stupid. That's not baseball. But as someone who's been to hundreds and hundreds of minor league baseball games, I think everybody wants to get out of there. Players, staff, fans. I never, ever want to see that implemented in Major League Baseball. But in the minors, like, it's okay. We, we came here to have fun. Yes, we care who wins. Not enough to sit through 15, 17 innings of a minor league game, especially on the player development side, too. Um, you know, it really messes up bullpen usage. You got play- I love position players pitching, but you don't really need the catcher in there for three innings in the 15th through 17th inning. Um, so it, it really does make sense from a pragmatic standpoint. Just never do it in the majors, and I'm totally cool. Yeah, I got to say, I can't argue with, with that either. I mean, I don't have a problem with a tie. I mean, if you went 12 innings and nothing's decided, all right, it's a tie. That's okay with me too. So, so Ben, yeah, once again, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'd love to have you on again sometime uh, and uh, hear how your travels are going. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right. It sounds great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Take care. Happy journeys. Thank you. You as well. Can I ask a question before we get to the next segment? Uh how many times does a hockey player have to play either on his back, on his knees, on his belly, or turned completely around before somebody replaces it with somebody else? Can somebody answer me that question? Can somebody answer me why Andrew McDonald has a job on the flyer still? <sighs> Sorry. Obey the puck segment brought to you today by Dan Calachico. I'm fine. <laughs> hey, I'm just proud that I made it through the whole thing. I only mentioned the uh, Pawtucket Red Sox twice, so oh, I'm very oh. proud of myself. Uh, before, yeah. we, before, it we, before we move on. <laughs> Before we move on, pork roll. When, when uh, Ben said that he grew up around Philly, I thought we were going off the rails. I I, <laughs> I, I was going to let him have it because you guys saw me verbally react. I was like, ooh. And then I was like, not say a word. Well, I did, not say I word. did mention Trenton pork roll, but I think that kind of got lost in the He's, other ones you came up with. He said the words pork roll. Oh. That's all I care about. I don't well, care. You know, we- in Jersey. I don't I mean, care if you call it Trenton pork roll. I don't care if you call it schmuck face pork roll. As long as the words pork roll. If it was an affiliated team in northern Jersey, they would be called the Taylor Hands. It's just there's nothing up there. And there would be a terrible affiliation. It would be a terrible affiliated team. The Taylor Hands and the pork roll played each other. That, like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good rivalry. Actually, that's a, that's we gotta get the, the Somerset Patriots. Yeah, no, no, no. We got to get the uh, the Trenton pork roll versus the somebody. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty interesting that both uh, Reading and Portland are rebranding themselves as the Whoopie Pies. No, well, I think they both claim the birth of the Whoopie Pie. And right? having having had both, Maine is far superior. Oh, just saying. I, I didn't know there was a difference. I'm surprised uh, you wouldn't they- think there would be, would you? Hmm. <laughs> So uh, let's we we uh, held this to the end of the uh, episode today, but uh, we're going to do our recap of where we've been in the last two weeks before we sign off, because I know everybody out there in the uh, podcast universe loves to hear where we've been. So, uh, Mark, you want to start us off this week? Because Dave and I have a place in common this week. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, I went to a couple high school basketball games this past uh, Saturday. One was in Jeffersonville. Check it out. Some uh, semi-state basketball action. Uh, arena is a typical Indiana gym, about 4,800 seats, if you call that typical. Uh, the city itself is quite nice. Jeffersonville, Indiana sits on the Ohio River, o- overlooks Louisville, and they have some uh, nice little coffee shops, restaurants, places to visit. It was a nice uh, February Saturday afternoon. 
Got to walk over the People Bridge over the Ohio River. Took some great pictures. I had a blast. On my way back, I checked out Columbus East High School, the Orange Pit. That's what they call it, the Orange Pit. Uh, my review should be up either tonight or tomorrow morning. It's already uh, up. It's the state. Once you walk in, everything is orange and brown. I mean, you're just watching basketball under these orange tinge. And what I found out from the AD is that about 10 years ago, they had major flooding. They had eight feet of um, water on the court. And after the water rescinded, they had 13 dead catfish laying around the court. So, I mean, feet. Uh, catfish, yeah. So I don't know if they ate them or skinned them, but uh, I thought that was a one of those quirky little stories you get to hear on your travels. And kind of like Ben earlier today, it's uh, – Makes the travels that much fr- uh, much more enjoyable. Wow. So that's where I was. Yeah, your uh, the review of that the orange place is up. The orange place. I'm sorry, sorry <laughs> for those of you who are from that town. Um, and yeah, the pictures are great. I, I would love to have played in a big orange gym in high school. Yeah, this is this giant sign, orange pit. You know, it's just yeah. it's fun. It's fun to say I play at the orange pit. Yeah. So, so, Dave, uh, let's see. I, I know the answer to this, but where have you been in the past couple of weeks? <laughs> I'm going to go backwards. Does that work? Sure. I go backwards. So, well, uh, you don't drive backwards. That would be yeah, well, not often. So uh, this past weekend uh, was family day weekend up here. You guys have a holiday or something on Monday, didn't you? What was it? What was it down there? Oh, President's, President's Day. President's Day. We kind of ignored it this work. year. <laughs> You should change it to, we need a president on President's Day. But anyway, I digress. Uh, no, this past Saturday, I was straight out of Compton. So it was off to the Compton Family Ice Arena, which is on the campus of Notre Dame in uh, Notre Dame, Indiana. There is one thing that this place lacks, and... Nobody missed it. Advertising. There is absolutely no advertising in this place. There are no banners. There's no billboards. Uh, there are no commercials. There's no nothing. Everything, everything is Notre Dame. And this place is absolutely gorgeous. Not very old. Uh, there are only three colors, apparently. They are gold and blue and green. Everything is gold, blue, and green. Uh, the floors, the seats, everything. Um, I guess the floor, the seat, the only negative I can really say, the seats are a little on the narrow side. So uh, I know I sent you guys the, the picture. You guys talked about uh, the seats in Washington with the cup holders on the, on the armrest. So immediately I went, oh, yeah, boys aren't going to like this one. But uh, that is definitely a spot to go. The the band is there. The students are there. Um, a little bit of a side note that was pretty cool is the goaltender for the Irish is the son of, uh, I think it's fair to say, legendary Canadian pioneer women's goaltender, Menon Rayom. So her son is the uh, oh. was the um, goaltender for the Irish, which was oh, pretty cool. Cool. Really? Yeah. Do you, do you feel old? Manon Riom has a college-age son. <laughs> no doubt, eh? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, wow. And we're and official. Home is actually on the puck wall in the man cave. And we're officially. An autograph, Atlanta Knights puck. We're officially too old. With, with the New Jersey Rock and Rollers of the Roller Hockey International. Remember that fun little league? Well, when she when she did her uh, preseason game for the Lightning, they were only what one or two years old at that point. They were they were they were just infants, yeah. infants still. Uh, but the weekend before that, it was off to New England. So uh, my daughter, who, who just insists on going to new states, um, we we rewarded her. This was her Christmas trip, and we hit Vermont. And I don't know if I'm wrong here. There's not a ton of things to see in Vermont, like a great skiing, great skiing state. But uh, if you're like a sports fan, there's not a lot of spectator sports going on. You got three options in the whole state of Vermont, really. You got <laughs> Vermont hockey, Vermont basketball, and uh, the minor league Lake Monsters. So, yeah, it was Vermont hockey and Vermont basketball in, in the uh, quintessential doubleheader. Um, I think it's probably the best double hitter you can get. I've done a few of them, and uh, and it's always great when you can match a hockey and a basketball. I've done it at Michigan a couple times, and and good times. Um, I'll let you roll right into this, Paul. But it, two venues that seemed kind of on the old side, uh, and here's what I found interesting, and, and I'll I'll let you take off from that point. Um. Both were not overly comfortable. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That was a that was a long day for my rear end. I got to tell you. <laughs> but if I if I have this right, you seemed way more positive on Vermont hockey than on Vermont basketball. Yeah. Well, yeah. You must have read my two reviews. Uh, I would definitely agree with you. Both both were built about the same time. I think they were both in the sixties, nineteen sixty three. I know for the hockey. And I think basketball is about the same time frame. But, yeah, I came away with two very different impressions from the two places. And uh, I think, really, the difference for me was access and just the amount of crowding. The basketball court was about what? It was about 3,200 seats. But yeah. Man, it, it looked like they fit twice as many people in there as they should have because it was it was packed shoulder to shoulder. Uh, you couldn't move without bumping into four people. Um, just a very crowded lot. As soon as you opened the doors and got in the lobby, it was crowded. There were lines to the concessions, lines to the bathroom. Um, no room to sit. And s- I had a guy's knee in the back in my back the whole time, and I think my knee in turn was in the back of the person in front of me. And then with everybody, you know, it's Vermont, so it's cold. It was about. 20, 25 degrees, so everybody had coats and hats and gloves, and there was just nowhere to put anything, so they got in the way, too, and coats getting stepped on, and yeah, just a very crowded, old-timey place. Now, how is that different from hockey, though? Because I thought hockey was plenty crowded, and uh, I feared, I, we, we had a little bit of space in that, like, there wasn't, a, there wasn't people directly behind us at all times, and I had a space beside us, beside me, but if it was if it was packed in, I you know you could have been in another section in the hockey rink, and it would have been somebody's knees in my back. And well, you were you were sitting on the ice, weren't you? Holy cow! We had front row seats on the ice, and I got to tell you, I have never sat this close to the glass in my life. I, I was maybe 
three inches away from the glass. My my nose was about three inches from the glass. It was incredible. I just think that I don't know. Maybe it's my hockey bias showing through, but the the basketball court was a big box, big yeah. concrete box with just bleachers. But while the hockey rink, while it did have just bleachers except for one end, oddly enough, the reserve seating was on the end in a giant section. <laughs> Season ticket holders. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just, it had that old time hockey barn feel to it. And I think the other big difference was the student section. Oh, absolutely. Basketball didn't really that. have a student section, but hockey had three sections of kids with thunder sticks and making noise and into the game. And I just thought the atmosphere was so much better with yeah, the hockey. Yeah, de- definitely the crowd was better in, in hockey. And and there was more to look at. Like the the hockey rink just felt like that kind of old-time hockey. Reminded me, actually reminded me of a, of a Quebec venue with the big – the big rounded roof barn kind of thing, the the hardwood on the ceiling, whereas the gym was a gym. And you could, you know, I could totally see them pushing the bleachers away. And, well, and they did. They 20 had guys the, they had shooting the hoops after. Yeah, they had the baskets raised up to the roof like you used to have to do in high school. You yep. cranked them up and they went up to the roof. Yeah, you could tell when there wasn't a game there. They had them all down and that's where gym class was. Yeah, yeah. that's what I say all the time. And they're building fun. a new basketball rink there. It's going to go right in between where the two of them were. Uh, I call it a basketball rink. But anyway, <laughs> 3,000 3, feet arena for the basketball team. So like You can't Cruz. complain about the support that the uh, Catamounts got from from either side. Yeah, no, no good crowds on, on both on both uh, cases. And I got to give you credit. Like, that little, uh, that little church street, that was – that was something I, I would have missed. Um, I, I needed to I needed to walk another half a block, and I didn't the first time we were down there. And then uh, that was that was kind of a nice spot. Actually, um, when we came out and they had uh, all the Christmas lights still. Yeah, that was nice. And Church Street is a pedestrian only, and uh, my wife absolutely loved the picture I got of my daughter there. So yeah, no, that was that was good time. Good time either way, right? Like. I I I I was kind of, you know, uh, busting you up a bit because I, I was thinking maybe your hockey bias was coming through a little bit, um, <laughs> but no, it, the uh, the rink the rink definitely had a little bit more of a, a hockey feel to it, and uh, but both both were fun. It was a it was a good weekend. I, I would say that the uh, university agrees because they're not replacing the hockey rink; they are replacing the gym. But the, and the the schematics to the new gym look fantastic. It's going to be modern. It's going to have 360 seating. It looks like it's going to be really nice. It's going to be done for the 2020 season. And, yeah, Burlington's a fantastic city to go visit. It's always had that reputation of great place. If you like craft beers, holy cow, you could go nuts in Burlington. And I was disappointed that I was the only one who even had a beer when we went out to dinner. <laughs> they have good pizza there, too, from what I remember. What are you yeah. talking about? We all had beer. I had ginger beer and oh, that's right. Sam had root beer and yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I had I had man beer. <laughs> you had man beer. Um, yeah, the the food there, a quaint little town in the summertime. That's really yeah. when you got to go to Burlington, unless you're a skier. But Burlington in the summer, you, it's really a walkable city. You can walk right down to the lake, all the way back up the hill where all the bars and restaurants are, and uh, the place has really got a good nightlife for a small city. Yes, yeah, so I just want. Did you go anywhere else in the last two weeks, Dave? 
Uh, the only other thing I would add is that, uh, once again, the Laurier Golden Hawks have won the Battle of Waterloo as we uh, shut out. Did we shut out? I think we shut out the Waterloo Warriors at the odd. We did shut them out, so that was good. But other than that, that was it. And so after my trip to Vermont, we actually, oh, I forgot all about the Manchester Monarchs. I'll talk about them really quick. Um, as we were driving back from Burlington back down to Massachusetts, we decided, you know what, the schedule lines up. We're going to stop at SNHU Arena in Manchester, the home of the Monarchs of the East Coast. Well, not the East Coast League. Don't call it that. People yell at me when I do that. It's the ECHL. Stands for nothing. Because it's wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Manchester was at one time one of the marquee minor league hockey teams in the AHL. They got caught up in the Western migration where all the uh, West Coast NHL teams moved their farm teams out west to be closer to home. And so Manchester got a consolation prize. The King said, hey, we're taking you, taking your team away. What well, we'll give you the RECHL team because we own that one too. Put it in Manchester. It's been four years there. The last year of the Monarchs, the team averaged about 6,000 fans a game. First year of the ECHL went down to 4,600. Now they are next to last in the ECHL. They're averaging about 2,400 fans a game. Now, so now why, is, why is that? Is it the hockey savvy market says, "Hey, this hockey stinks. We want AHL or promotion." It might be one of those things. Part of it is, um, yeah, they they uh, haven't gotten over being jilted. Um, mm-hmm. We're seeing the same thing in Pawtucket, and I hate to see what's going to happen once the Paws are leaving. A couple of years, you're going to see the same kind of thing. But also, um, the team is has been sold twice in the four years that they've been in the ECHL and they're for sale again. So I think it's also kind of a reaction to an unsettled market and just kind of the people have figured this team is gone. Why support it? I mean, because it's a really nice, I'm sorry, Dan. Here's my problem. I understand to a point, um, like not supporting a team when they're not doing well or, you know, not paying outrageous ticket prices when the team is, you know, doing less than, but I, I get a real problem fundamentally with, uh, okay, so the team moves from, your AHL team moves to a different city, and then you get an ECHL team. It's still, you, you're not proving anything by not going to these games. All you're proving is the team who left correct that, okay, well, we couldn't sustain an American Hockey League team here. Why the hell do we think we're going to sustain an ECHL team here? Nobody's coming. I I get to a point doing that, but at a certain point you got to go, well, if we don't go, we're never – if we want this back so much, we better show the hell up. Glens Falls is a great B- example of that. Bingo. Bingo. I got a better example. Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yeah. When the yeah, Moose came in there, they just lined up to watch the AHL Moose. Perfect. And it was perfect example. a perfect spot. Perfect. I mean, it was the perfect storm to get the Jets back, right? Like, it just all lined up perfectly. But uh, without without that strong support for the Moose, uh, I'm not sure the Jets would have been an option. It's the perfect example because you literally took a, a, an opportunity to be like, we're still Winnipeg. We still want hockey. We're going to go see the Moose, and we're going to fill this. What is it, 15,000 MTS center? Yeah. We're still going to yeah. fill this sucker up. And not only that, not only do we have an NHL team, we got a building that has two hockey teams and two hockey teams that do well. And oh, the Jets sold out for what? Another 
16 years, it's pretty, it's a long time, right? I'm not overdoing that number. It's pretty long time. Well, I, I guess the other piece of that equation is that, um, after the Jets left, uh, and went to Phoenix, they got their arena. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, all the puzzle pieces fell back into, to get, eventually get the team back there, to get a team back there. And it just so happened that Atlanta, unfortunately, and we've had Lloyd on before and we all, you all know how I feel that that was an unfair shake, but that happened to be the team that needed to go first. Uh, whether I agree with it or not is for a completely different conversation for another time, but all those pieces fell into place. Meanwhile, in Quebec, you have a junior team that'll sell out Videotron Center. <laughs> and, and the league will be like, eh, Seattle. <laughs> yeah. well, I have a buddy, big hockey fan. He, uh, he kind of thinks Carolina is going to be the next team to move to Quebec. That's his theory based on some stuff he told me. I don't know how. I think, I don't think with his, with his stubborn, I'm going to say stubborn, uh, cause I, I, yeah, I'm so tired of trying to put Gary Bettman over at the same, as far as monetarily and popularity, the NHL has never been more popular. I get it. Blah, 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 blah. The game has suffered in start, certain spots and the cities have suffered in certain spots. And I absolutely will never ever agree with a word he says about not putting a team in Quebec and the city and the town cannot support two franchises and two fan bases and blah, 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 blah. Is he blind? Is he blind? I don't understand that. I, I, I don't get it because I don't think people were really excited about Winnipeg being back in the league. But, my God, you go to Winnipeg, they're selling the place out. You're the number one team in the city, the province. So I, I think the big difference, though, between between the two situations and one of the big things hold – well, I think there's two things that are holding Quebec back. And, Dan, you're absolutely right about the number of fans in the stands and support at a grassroots level. Um Television market, I think, is a big thing. Yeah. I don't think the NHL thinks they can gain any any more uh, eyeballs on to TV screens by putting a team in Quebec. Okay. <laughs> I think the other and and I understand. I I'm not is, blowing your comment off. I'm blowing the logic of the NHL off. By the way. <laughs> well, you know what? Like that whole you got that whole Carolina area now. What are their TV numbers? I I don't know. I don't know. Um, they're definitely good uh, at the end of a home game after a win. That's that's prime Carolina Hurricane time on TV. I'm just saying with, uh, and I say this in a non-sarcastic, ironic way, uh, the, as well, air quotes, as Montreal's doing, uh, yeah, shove another team. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> let's let's test let's test some loyalties. Let's get let's go for it. The other piece though is corporate. There's there is not a huge corporate uh, corporate backing in Quebec City. I, no, not to not to the extent of some of the other markets. I think yeah. that's probably a good question. All right, let's question let's mark. start a corporation and let's get this sucker going. <laughs> Quebec. <laughs> SJ Corporation no. Incorporated headquarters Nord- in Quebec City. Nordique International. 
Be the only corporation in Quebec City that speaks English. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't speak French? Uh, not really. No. Ah, damn it. Well, there goes that <laughs> idea. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've traveled, I've had my share, man. I've been everywhere. I've been everywhere.